0: Elon Musk is a self-styled free speech absolutist. Now he runs Twitter. What does his management of Twitter now mean for the future of freedom of speech in America? Our second topic today, Brittany Griner's return from captivity in Russia. What does the Biden administration's high profile swap of Griner for Victor Boot, who is a notorious Russian arms dealer, what does that reveal about American foreign policy? Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Ilan Jerno. Joining me today is Ankar Gathe. Welcome, Ankar. Hi, Milan. So today our format is gonna be different from usual. We have two topics we wanna to discuss, and we thought this would be an interesting experiment to cover more material than we normally do, which is how we typically have one topic and we dive into it. So let's talk about the first topic, Musk Twitter and free speech. And if anyone's been trying to follow this in the news, Good luck to you, I salute you. This has been a a really hectic few weeks since he, uh, more than that, since he took over. And I think the place to begin is with, there's a lot of things that have been going on in the last few days and last few weeks with Musk owning Twitter. I think that the topic from our perspective that's really interesting here is Musk's uh, claim that he's a free speech absolutist, which he said, Uh, I think sometime earlier this year in a a different context. So, I want to just get a, a reaction from you in terms of what you think that would mean for somebody to take seriously the idea of being a free speech absolutist. Do you consider yourself one? Is it even possible to be a free speech absolutist? And then let's talk about how Musk understands this based on the evidence of his behavior.
1: Yeah, so it is possible to be a free speech absolutist. I do regard myself as one, I think Ayn Rand was one and it's part of what her philosophy of objectivism is part of what it teaches. But what an absolutist means is that you understand free speech or freedom of speech as a principle. You understand what the principle means and then you apply it consistently across the board to all the situations to which it's applicable. And my view of Musk is He cannot be a free speech absolutist because he does not understand the issue of free speech at the level of principle. So there's not an issue then does he fully embrace the principle or does he reject it in certain ways? Does he think there's exceptions to it and so on? I don't think he understands it as a principle. And that's not because he's um, stupid, obviously, it's because he's just ignorant. It takes work to understand this whole issue, to understand it historically, to understand where the First Amendment in the United States Constitution came from, what were the arguments in support of it. And and if you haven't put in the work to understand that, then you can't understand freedom of speech as a principle. And then there's not an issue. Are you upholding this principle as an absolute or not? And why this is so important, I think, is because it's being framed as this is what a free speech absolutist looks like. So what, because he self describes as that, because he's such a prominent public figure that now his actions are being ascribed to, well, this is what free speech absolutism looks like. And it's not what free speech absolutism looks like. And so the danger is he's gonna give free speech a bad name um, or he's gonna just misrepresent what it actually means. And so that that's what I find most worrisome in this whole situation is not how he's so far managing Twitter and so on. It's the whole characterization of the way to understand what's happening is you have a free speech absolutist at the helm of Twitter. And this is what that looks like. Um, so we can talk about what it actually means to regard freedom of speech as an absolute. But that to me, that's that's the most important issue of what is going on. Now And how it's going to color the public debate. And that public debate includes that government saying, well, if this is what freedom of speech as an absolute looks like. We need regulatory powder, power to limit freedom of speech. And then like there's something wrong with the First Amendment and on and on. And there's many people who say that today. And this is going to give them ammunition, I think.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to that, because already at least one of the journalists who was anointed by Musk to, to be part of the Twitter files, which we might mention a little bit uh, later in the conversation, Barry Weiss, who used to be at the New York Times, now she has her own platform. She wrote one of the inst- several installments of the Twitter files, and she's come out saying this is too much power for one individual. This is what it looks like. We This is a problem. I, I think we need regulators to step in. And I think this is partly a reaction to the context that you're describing. I, I want to walk through some of the de- the developments because there are two threads here that so in terms of thinking about what would it look like to be an advocate for the principle of freedom of speech, just in order to get into that, I, there, there are a couple of threads here. One is just Musk before and independent of owning Twitter. Uh, and then there's Trump, there's Musk since owning Twitter, and I think let's talk about the the stuff he's done most recently because this is where the allegations of he's a he's a hypocrite and he doesn't really mean it and he's he's uh, a fool. The, these are, I things are the, what people will find most credible. Um, so I just want to walk through some of that and then talk about is this really hypocrisy or is it just how do you think about the. What do you think then is the evidence that he's not understanding it versus its hypocrisy? Because I want to just clarify that. So just to give people a whirlwind summary of a lot of uh, things that we can't get everything in here. But so just as a context, so Musk becomes the owner in the last few months. And prior to this, he's said things to the, and I'll quote some of his tweets. He said in November six my commitment to free speech extends even to not banning the account following my plane, even though that is a direct personal safety risk, end quote. And then what people are pointing to is that on December 14th, Elon Musk suspends the account or or bans this account that is tracking his flight, the the flights of his private jet in real time. This is an account called Elon Jet. And people are up in arms how could this possibly be you said you wouldn't do so and then he comes back with an, an explanation that he felt there's a particular situation with his son one of his children was in uh, in danger or could have been in danger this puts a target on their back and then a whole number of things cascade and i'm just going to touch on a couple of them uh there was when he came into Twitter, he said, well, I'm going to reinstate a number of people who were banned, including Donald Trump, and which he actually did. And I think that was the result of a poll. And he's the numbers, hundreds of hundreds, if not thousands of accounts that were previously suspended or banned were reactivated. In the in the wake of banning this account that tracked his plane, there was a suspension of a number of journalists who were reporting on it. And so journalists who were big users of, of Twitter, then, again, there's a big uh, uproar about this. How could you be a free speech absolutist? Now you're banning people who are talking about what you're doing, who are journalists, and this is uh, a, a big embarrassment for you. And then they get unsuspended. And then there's a poll about, well, what do you guys think? Should I should I continue being the CEO of Twitter or not? And there's, there's a lot of sort of public engagement throughout this whole uh, process. But just to summarize then, so one of the major claims he made in... in The vein of being a free speech absolutist is that he wouldn't ban a specific account, which would seem like an edge case to most people. And then he does do do so. And then people are saying, well, is this you betraying the principle? And if this isn't even a realistic ideal, this is ridiculous. So I want to just get your thoughts on. What. How do you navigate a situation like this? <laughs> Someone's tracking your private, I don't know if you have a private jet, but <laughs> this is not the issue. It's someone tracks a private jet for somebody and and you have the, the authority as owner of Twitter to, to stop that if you feel threatened. To. What do you make of that? Is that a violation of free speech or not?
1: It's not a violation of freedom of speech. And that, so that's part of the issue that it, the whole thing is being couched like that. You might think it's hypocritical, But there are also such a thing as changing one's mind. This was my previous position. Now, when I see more of the reality and the meaning of it, I've changed my mind and think my position is wrong. And you're not a hypocrite if you just acknowledge that, but yeah, I've changed my mind. But he put it as my commitment to freedom of speech. And it's not a freedom of speech means you're free from the interference of government. You can say what you want, what you think, you can look for people who, who are gonna listen to you, you can work to gain an audience and so on without the government putting pressure on you, censoring you. The, the office of censor used to be a government position in many countries that their government officials appointed with the power to approve or ban content That's what censorship is. It's government precluding people from saying certain things, and more widely, far less understood. It's government encouraging certain kinds of things and promoting these. All that is an interference with people's freedom to think and say what they actually think and say. So what he was actually saying and how it should have been couched and how it should have been translated by commentators and the media, is it's not a commitment to free speech. He's saying my content moderation policies when I get control of Twitter will be that we allow almost anything, including an account that's um, taking public data and using it to report whereby I'm flying to uh, every day. um, that, That, yeah, that content, it's legal that someone can do this. And Twitter's going to, so one of the ways it was, put and that, and that he sometimes put it is any speech that's legal we're going to allow on the platform that's not f- about freedom of speech that's just your your content moderation is only things we will take down is when we have evidence that it's actually illegal activity and absent that we're not that's a content moderation policy part of what i think he found out is a lot of advertisers are uncomfortable with that as a content moderation policy, and we're reluctant to advertise that's not an issue of freedom of speech. Advertisers, it's, they're perfectly well within their rights, including their freedom of speech is, yeah, here's a platform that I'm comfortable advertising on and here's one I'm not. And they have, can make that decision just as Twitter can make a decision about its content moderation policies. None of that is freedom of speech or putting it differently. All of that is just part of the exercise of freedom of speech. It's not if he, if he had said, look, I'm not going to allow certain kinds of content, any of this, if you view it as doxing of what they're doing in in posting a private plane, we're not going to allow anything like that. That's not, oh, you've now interfered with somebody's freedom of speech. That's part of your exercise of it. So it has nothing to do with your free speech absolutist, what you decide for your platform, what your content moderation policies will be. And that's part of what's incredibly blurred in most of the discussions of this, including by Musk.
0: I I wanted to acknowledge that I was trying to give a summary of some of what's been happening and it, it's, it definitely feels chaotic trying to piece it together. I don't know if that's actually because there's so much happening or it's being reported in a certain way, but there's definitely a lot happening. And particularly throughout this period, uh, Musk has been encouraging a number of journalists to reveal uh, insider information about Twitter during, the, before his, his tenure, as a way of, I guess it's a transparency exercise. We're gonna show what actually happened in the past, people are upset, we're gonna be more open. I'm not totally clear about the purpose of this Twitter files, maybe we can come back to that. But the, the important thing I wanted to bring out is that, I agree, I, I don't think there's evidence to think he's lacking in intelligence. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. I think he, he's super smart. But I, but I agree with your assessment that he, there's ignorance here. But I, I I do think it's it it warrants criticism that there's a a lot of behavior that seems erratic and even arbitrary, and or at least hard to understand from the outside. I mean, at minimum. And it's it I don't know if he's getting advice or if it's all his decisions or if he's reacting. But that does seem it seems strange. I don't think it's good for Twitter as a business, and it certainly it reflects strangely on him that this is how he wants to run this massive company.
1: Yeah, it, yeah, for sure it comes across, I think to most users and and the public more generally that it's erratic, it's reactionary, it changes every hour or six hours. They say now this is the policy and then some fairly obvious implications of that policy come to the surface, and then, oh, maybe that shouldn't be our policy, and we change it. So it's, it's yeah, it comes across as short-term, reactionary, capricious. Um, I think the wider lesson should be how difficult content moderation is on a platform the size of Twitter. And even if you say, this is our policy, so if we're against doxing, say, and 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 then have some specific definitions of that, to implement that in a way that would be consistent and you actually think, yeah, we're implementing this as a policy on the platform as a whole, not just a few prominent accounts or accounts connected to Musk or something like that, that it's, 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 this is really a policy for the platform and for all users. Just to implement that, let alone to design what the policy should be to think that through and to think, yeah, this is what, how we want content moderation to work on our platform that just to formulate that is very complicated but then to implement it at the scale that a twitter or a facebook and so on operates it's really difficult to do that and part of what you see here like it there it has not been that kind of thinking I think on the part of musk that's what comes across and then it's it's reactionary it changes all the time and you can see why this is would be harmful or at least that many, you could think of many investors in Twitter would find this harmful in terms of the business model, because you're trying to, I would think both for advertisers and for prominent users, they want some stability so that they can plan long range. Like if I'm trying to build up a Twitter following, it can't be that every day It's content moderation policy changes such that half the work I did now is declared, no, if you do that, you're going to get banned or uh, if not permanently banned, at least suspended for some time. so You can't plan like this is what I'm going to use, try to build a following on Twitter and a a kind of business on Twitter. And the same I would think for advertisers that you don't sign an advertising contract for we're going to advertise on the next week on Twitter and then we'll see what your content moderation policies are the following week. And we'll decide like week by week if we're going to advertise. They want some longer term stability to know we're advertising on this platform. And this is how we think that platform is being moderated and will be used and so on. And if that's changing all the time, I can understand some advertisers getting cold feet about like we can't plan long range for how to advertise on Twitter because we don't know what Twitter will become and if it's a platform that we'll want to be on and to, to go to some other platform that they think has more stability. So I would think that just this, the erratic nature of it is detrimental to um, it as a business model.
0: When we were talking the other day about t- t- today's conversation for the podcast, one of the things you were saying is the worry you had, this was maybe a week ago, was people will look at this and say, who ne- if this is what free speech looks like, who needs free speech? And and I don't mean to put words in your mouth. you can clarify if you want. But one of the things I read this morning in preparation for the podcast is an editorial at The Washington Post. and it begins, I'm just going to read the first paragraph or so. It begins like this: So much for free speech absolutism. It looks like it took less than two months for Elon Musk to turn Twitter into exactly what he had accused the social media site of being all along. a town square with a dictator for a mayor where policy is enacted and forced based on caprice and political, or in this case, personal grudges. And then skipping over a little bit, if there's anything to learn from the Musk era, Twitter, just I have to interject, it's like, we're what, a month into this? <laughs> there's already, a okay, uh, going back to the quote. It's that free speech absolutism Musk claimed to espouse is untenable as a guiding principle, end quote. I read that and I thought, that rang in my ears, because this is exactly the kind of thing that there's reason to worry about. I also think, I agree with your observation that this is, if there's a lesson already, it's that this is hard, really hard things to do. And it's way harder if you don't know what free speech is and you think you do, or you're you're underestimating the, the complexity of it. Um, I'm curious, do you want to talk a bit about the, the Twitter files that have come out so far? I know there's, there's another one out this morning, which I haven't had a chance to read. Um, but one of the things that struck me, I forget which one this was in. And I have to say, I, I just read through them very quickly, I didn't, I didn't have time to process them all. But one of the things that leapt out at me is that in the analysis of the way some of the executives at Twitter were making decisions in real time about what to do, does this apply, does our policy apply, is this a violation? Uh, We didn't see this until this was revealed, and of course, these are selections made by journalists, we don't have the full threads of the emails and it would be really a significant work of forensic research to, to, to present a fully objective picture, but based on what these journalists have surfaced. It's not as if this was easy for people at Twitter either, and they were making decisions that I think on the outside definitely looked erratic maybe much less erratic than than Musk's decisions. But these are really hard decisions even for them. And in the emails that have surfaced, all the caveats I mentioned earlier, but again, even in these emails, it, it, I see people who are really trying hard to figure this out and they're working on a scale that's, that's gigantic. It's, it's hard to even understand. And this is just in English, right? I'm sure there's other countries and other languages that they have to monitor. But just for this market, the, the, the Anglophone market, it is just so difficult. Uh, and there's more things to say about the Twitter files and things that have come up that, that I think do implicate questions about freedom of speech. Um, but I just want to get your reactions if you if you had a chance to read through any of those.
1: Um, yeah, so let me say one thing of first of what you brought up before about this being couched as free speech absolutism. And then it sort of, well, if this is what it looks like, who needs it? So you brought up the Washington Post story and, and notice in that it was a characterization of him like a dictator. And it's like, we don't want a dictator. Obviously there's something bad with a dictator. And, and that, that's not right to think of it like that, but it's encouraged by the putting the whole thing under freedom of speech. And you brought up Barry Weiss. And I think that that what you brought up was important there because she thinks of herself on the side of freedom of speech. And if you allow it being couched as, well, okay, we now have a free speech absolutist at the head of Twitter, but I don't like what he's doing and so on. Even her was it's something, well, we, this has to be regulated. You can't One man can't have this much power. And, so, and that is if what happens is government starts to regulate Twitter and other social media, that is the death of freedom of speech in social media. And you have people now who think of themselves as pro-freedom of speech, saying, well, look, it looks like we need something like that. That's what this, conceptualizing it in this wrong way, that's what it encourages. And, and part of the tragedy is it encourages even the best people to think, oh yeah, there, there, there's something wrong with freedom of speech if you don't understand it as a principle. And then you put the, tw- the the release of these Twitter files as an issue of transparency. I don't think of it like that. And I don't think even the, issue of transparency applies to private entities it applies to a government of is are we actually seeing the way in which the government is wielding power and in a free society or semi-free society like ours today this is an issue the government is our representative they can't be keeping things from us other than in a military or like police context where there's some issues of why they have secret investigations and so on, or can't release everything now. But there is an issue for government of it being transparent to the citizens whose representative it is. Twitter is not the representative of citizens. There's not an issue of transparency. Um, And if, in this case, it's a few journalists combing through whatever they've been given access to, but they can't just roam around the company and its servers and get all kinds of things it's electronic communication from email slack and there might be text messages and some other platforms if you just stop for five minutes and think we both work at ari if someone got access to our email and slack but doesn't have access to meetings where things are discussed in person there's not a recording of it and Um, So so all kinds of things are unseen that are taking place and you can't get access to. And now you're trying to reconstruct, well, this is what happened. This is what the full debate was. And you have some emails and some Slack things, but you don't have other things. Um, Can you really reconstruct that? And how difficult, if you even think you can, how difficult that is. And then if you don't have full access even to the electronic communication, is it, would there even be electronic communication that if I had access to, I would think of, okay, this would put it in a different context. I'd have a different interpretation of it, let alone all these other things. And I know for sure for just my communication at ARI, someone could get a hold of a number of emails in Slack and paint my view with some justification of using just that evidence as my view of such and such must've been this. And they're wrong about it because sometimes in email or Slack, you're playing devil's advocate, because something's come up in a meeting and you're pushing back just to make sure this has been fully thought through. It's not your view that you're articulating, but part of your role, and often this is your role as an employee, is to push back, to give a devil's advocate, worst case scenario and so even though that's not your view. So the idea that you can comb through records like this, even if you get some privileged access and know fully what happened, that's very difficult. And it's not an issue of transparency. I actually think there's part of a public relations thing going on here of to paint the previous management as really bad to make present management look better. Um, uh, but that, like, I take everything with not a grain of salt that there's necessarily deliberate attempt to mislead, but just given what the evidence is and the way that companies actually work, how difficult it is to no, know to fully, like, what was the whole debate around banning Trump? You get a glimpse of some of the things, but that doesn't tell you everything that happened. So to to have any kind of certainty, oh, this is what happened to Twitter, I'd be very suspicious.
0: Yeah, just to build on that, I, one of the things that I found interesting is the, one of the, I forget if it's Matt Tibby or Barry Weiss or one of the others, They highlight the fact that one of the executives has so many meetings on his schedule with the FBI that it became sort of an internal joke and all their hand in glove they implicate and they're really insinuating all sorts of things about the collaboration and then there's other threads that suggest there's FBI pressure. We don't know what happened at all these weekly meetings. It's just as plausible that this executive at Twitter was saying, no, you can't do X. No, you can't do Y. We are not going to, part of his job is to be a firewall. We don't know exactly what happened in these meetings. So the, the fact, from the fact that there were regular meetings, you don't know if Twitter was acting in, in defense of its own integrity and its own freedom of speech, or it was being bullied weekly. there's just not enough there to know. And I think that's really material to thinking about what role the FBI and other government agencies had in in, uh, uh, the decision-making. I want to just go back to the, the main thread that we started with, which has to do with Trump now. Sorry, I keep saying Trump, and I think it's because some aspects of the way Musk behaves remind this. I think it's the attention seeking as we were talking about earlier. I don't mean to liken them. I certainly, I I really don't think they're in the same category. I just want to make that clear. Uh, But when we think about Musk, one of the things we've been talking about is since he became owner of Twitter and is running the company, and that's a big focus of the conversation so far. But let's let's look at the other side of this issue, which is. You were telling me before we started the conversation today that the big issue that hasn't been surfaced, I think, enough is Musk's relationship with China. And that on, its, on its own, that should lead anybody to question his own, does he know what it means to be for free speech if he has certain relationships with China? So what's, the, what's your view of that? What is the scope of that relationship?
1: Yeah, I would put these two issues together. That the, um, So the, the, the revelations in the later, uh, the Twitter files, in the the later releases, are more about government uh, communications with, and then what the content of those communications are with Twitter from the FBI, and presumably some other government agencies, Department of Homeland Security and so on. And that, that is the free speech issue of what is the government actually doing here? And it's clear in China what the government does. It, it does massive censorship, massive attempt to control what Chinese citizens are permitted to see and what they are prohibited from seeing. The, the censorship of Tiananmen Square and what happened, criticism of government officials and so on. I mean, it's, it's incredible when you read about it, the length that the Chinese government goes to prevent its citizens from having anything resembling an exercise of freedom of speech. And if you're a free speech absolutist, so that you think of freedom of speech as a principle, it's part of the right to liberty of any and every individual that certainly includes uh, Chinese citizens. And so if you are a free speech absolutist, you would have such a negative view of what the Chinese government is doing. And you would not go along at all with what they're doing. But because Tesla has um, such a presence in China, factories, it's one of their biggest markets, there's certainly speculation that I don't think is unreasonable that Musk is soft on China. And you can see in interviews that he is. So for instance, the Starlink, when he activated these for Ukraine to help them communicate in the face of Russian bombardment and jamming of internet and cell phone and so on. That, and he put it as like, this is freedom of speech. I'm not gonna shut these down without a gun being pointed at my head. Sorry, I'm a free speech absolutist or something like that is is the basic content of it. But when he's asked about, um, he says the Chinese government contacted him and said, Are you gonna put up Starlink over China? Because we really don't want that. And it was, no, we're not gonna do that. There's certainly no plans for that to happen. And he's even published articles in um, venues that are run by the Chinese government. And nobody who's pro-freedom of speech and thinks of it as an absolute principle, part of the rights of any individual would do such a thing. And it, it, again, doesn't make him the biggest villain there ever was. But the idea that he, one would brand him as a free speech absolutist, the best thing you can say about it is he doesn't know what freedom of speech is. And so it, 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 there's no way he can think of this principle as it's an absolute. He doesn't know what the principle is. I, in regard to China, I have a more negative view of that, but, but it's, and then there's the question, that I think anyone concerned about freedom of speech should have is, is our government becoming a little bit more like China every day that it's trying to monitor social media platforms and pressure companies to, you know, you should take down this, you might wanna look at that. We don't really like this and we can talk about this. I think there is a context in which a free government can do something like that. But the present context is much more, and if you don't toe the line, bad things might happen to you. And and particularly because it's both sides of the political aisle, um, Democrats and Republicans both um, pretty much say openly That we're going to change the law to punish you not we're going to change the law because we think the law is wrong, and this is what law would look like to actually protect. People's rights and freedom of speech, so it's more we're going to change the law, because we don't like what you're doing and that the more that's happening. That is a real threat and violation of freedom of speech by the government and that of all the things that i've seen in the Twitter files that's the issue that raises questions about actual freedom of speech. And again, if Musk was the free speech absolutist, that's the issue that he would focus on, not Twitter's content moderation policies and what they did and decided to do with uh, the Hunter Biden story. The only free speech issue is Did they do that in part because they thought they're being pressured and threatened by government. That's a free speech issue. Um, But again, it's not distinguished in much of the coverage, and it's not distinguished by Musk.
0: So I want to just close off this discussion of Musk and turn to the other story. Before that, I just want to make a comment briefly, because I don't think it warrants a lot of discussion. I saw an article in researching what's going on with Musk that I thought needs a a strong but brief response, which is uh, in this publication out of the UK called Unheard. There was an article titled, The Twitter Boss Perfectly Embodies Ayn Rand's Rational Egoism. That's the headline of the article. The article is absurd in that it it suggests that Musk is somehow, uh, as the title suggests, deeply committed to and therefore a representative of Ayn Rand's theory of uh, rational egoism and her philosophy of objectivism. No, nothing that he's done, I think, warrants that conclusion. And the article itself doesn't actually make a case for that. its I don't think it the the evidence it gives of his interest in Ayn Rand, the, the most that they can point to, which is sad because I wish he would take her more seriously. I think he's a lot to learn from what she has to say. Uh, the most that they can point to is a tweet from uh, 2018 where he's partly dismissive and partly uh, condescending, I think, towards what Ayn Rand has to offer. Uh, so it, it, to me, this is an interesting case where this is not directly on the theme of Musk's understanding of free speech, but it, it's on viewing him as a major figure in the culture and wanting to bash him, and at the same time bash Ayn Rand by associating them together. So I, I think this article doesn't warrant a detailed refutation, but it it's it's a sad example of the the state of intellectual culture where this is something that is taken seriously in a reputable publication. I I think Unheard is mostly reputable. I haven't read it enough, but some of the people who are in it seem reputable. Um, So absolutely not. He does not embody Ayn Rand's rational egoism. I wish he did. I think if he did, he would be making better decisions than the ones he's doing. And he would take his own character and his own uh, uh, knowledge more seriously and and pursue, uh, I think pursue his life in, in a different way than he's actually doing. Uh, I I don't know. Did you, do you want to have anything to say about that, or can we move on to the, the Griner topic? Yeah, we can
1: move on. I agree. With okay. for of
0: it. <laughs> I didn't want to spend too long on it, but it it stuck in my craw, and I thought it a, a warranted uh, comment. All right. So let's talk about Brittany Griner, and let me set some context here. So that she was released from Russian prison. Uh, in December, December 8th. But the backstory is that she was held, she was arrested in February. She was held for a number of uh, months there. She went to trial in, I think it was in July and sentenced in August. And what she was arrested for, according to the news reports I've seen, is that in one of her vape uh, canisters, she had some uh, cannabis oil. And apparently this was something that she was using for... Uh, pain as an athlete she, she needed it at least that was presented in the court uh, from a doctor's letter and in russia they have severe penalties for drug possession in this case the maximum sentence was possible was 10 years she got 9 years and what came of this is an effort from the biden administration over several months to to get her released and the way they did this is through a prisoner exchange or a prisoner swap. Uh, and what happened is that she was found guilty and was sentenced to, to nine years. And then it, since then, since August, and I think even before that, there was uh, diplomatic efforts to, to uh, connect with Russia and offer them uh, a prisoner in exchange for two American prisoners. So the other American prisoner is, I think is Ro- uh, Paul Whelan, who was a former Marine who was who is in in prison in Russia. And the idea was the U.S. would give the Russians someone they wanted very much, this man called Victor Boot, who is a convicted and notorious arms dealer with a very colorful history. Uh, He's known as the merchant of death. And the, the reason he's in prison in the U.S. is that he was convicted on charges of selling arms to groups that were committed to harming American citizens. So he was uh, caught in a sting. Now, that's the backstory. And I, I thought it'd be interesting to pick apart some of the features of the story that may, that, that are important for understanding what to make of this. So is this a, is this a success of diplomacy? Is this something that should be replicated because there are other prisoners still, because Whelan wasn't released, he wasn't part of the deal, he was left out. What to make of that so i'm interested in your perspective because you wanted to put this on the agenda for conversation so what's your perspective on car
1: my basic perspective at the time and it remains that so now is that the whole thing's outrageous um and that and particularly what is outrageous is the way our government is thinking about the situation what its foreign policy or lack thereof is, if it's gonna engage in this kind of activity. So it's important to say, but it's not the essential, but it's still important to say that um, possession of cannabis cannabis oil should not be a crime, let alone that you can get 10 years for the, the possessing it. So this law, And you can put law in quotes, I think, when you're talking scare quotes, when you're talking about Russia. This law is an unjust, non-objective law. There's not any reason for this law to be on the books. But when you go to Russia and travel to Russia, work in Russia, live in Russia, it's, I think, inescapable that someone can't be ignorant of this, that the whole Russian system of government Including it's the legal branch is non objective, so this is par for the course. It's not, oh, yeah, like it's got a basically legal objective system. And I didn't realize there is one law against possession of cannabis oil, and you can view it as like I'm a, the, how unfortunate it is that I didn't realize this. It's, I would, I mean, for instance, I will not travel to Russia, I will not travel as a tourist, even though there's particularly in St. Petersburg things I would want to see, but it is. The, I view the whole system of government as uh, corrupt, non-objective. Things like this happen to, in Russia. They happen to Russian citizens and they happen to foreign nationals. And it's just to go to Russia is not high enough on my to-do list that I would risk those kinds of things. But if I did go, I would know I'm risking these kinds of things and not if Okay, that there's, I've come run afoul of some um, government official who then uses his corrupt power to go after me. That now the government is going to step in and, in some kind of foreign policy way, now work for my release and so on. I can't, I, you can't have that kind of power over what the US government is going to do, what prisoners it's going to release. Um, I mean, I know you've thought a lot about this. Like, what is the difference between what happened and negotiating with terrorists? I mean, here it's an official government, not a terrorist regime trying to become the ruler of wherever Palestine, whatever. But, but what is the difference between what happened and negotiating, and supposedly our policy is like we will not negotiate with terrorists. And what is the difference? And that a private citizen can put you in that position that it's oh now it's like we've got some kind of obligation to get this person out of Russia. I find that very troublesome. That that people can think that that's what our government should be doing.
0: I agree. I don't think there's an essential difference. And in fact, what Russia is doing in Ukraine is 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 a kind of terrorism, right? They're trying to intimidate the Ukrainians into surrender. So in in it, it is a country that's recognized. Its recognized sovereignty is recognized on the UN Security Council, but it is. in in material terms, in in, in essential terms, it is as much of an enemy of freedom as say ISIS or one of the Palestinian terrorist groups or Iran or something like that. I wanted to stress a point that you were raising, which I I don't think people are as sensitive to. So she's been flying back and forth to work in Russia as on the off season to play basketball, apparently it's very lucrative. So as you were saying, she's been going back and forth. So it's not her first visit to Russia I didn't know this was a thing. And, and again, I'm not trying to uh, blame her fully for what's happening here, because it's a big part of the problem is this? she's in Russia and Russia is not a place you should want to be. I, I just want to relate an anecdote that about 10 years ago, someone I know was working in Russia as just flying in to do deals and, and so on. So, and they told me a story about a colleague who not famous, not part of any major athletically, just someone in a mid-level company, mid-level and some big company going in to uh, conduct acquisitions of land and property uh, for investment. So not someone that the government of Russia has any reason to think is trying to do them harm. In fact, it's bringing in foreign investment. And this person who there would be no reason for them to be picked up by the police, let alone the secret police, was in fact arrested or detained without charge held in a cell, intimidated, and eventually, uh, thanks to, I guess it was consular help from the country from which they're uh, resident, they were released. But you can just imagine the brutality of what that experience was like, and this is just someone, like a road warrior, flying in and out of Moscow a few times a month to do deals from Europe, and this is a normal thing. And so the the person who told me this story said, yeah, we have to be wary of that, and I have console on my speed dial I know that's the first call I'm going to make if I get arrested and this was 10 years ago and so to me this is part, part of what is alarming about this is companies send their employees to rush to do business and it's not because they're being completely reckless it's they're doing it because Months before that, the President of France or the, the Prime Minister of the UK, they're going there and shaking hands with, the, with Putin and saying, "Yeah, we're all about making deals with you. Let's invest in Russia. This is a great place. We want to do business with you. So they're opening the doors for companies to go and encouraging it, not with, with um, not in the way they encourage certain that kinds of activities like with, with um, rebates and so on, but they, but diplomatically they're encouraging it. And at the same time that they're doing that, that you have these photo ops of Putin and, and world leaders and, and the idea that Russia is a destination for capital, at the same time that they're doing that, there's a at least up until Ukraine jolted a lot of leader leaders in Europe and other other parts of the world into having some more reality based view of Putin. There wasn't a serious reckoning with the fact that Putin is a tyrant, he's a thug, he is. Uh, he was rising into the role of dictator. So at the same time that it's the message that companies get from the foreign policy of European countries and particularly the US com- uh, uh, government is Russia has some bad elements to it, but it's okay, go do business there. And I, I'm not saying this absolves the companies of going uh, completely, because I think you still have to have your own judgment. You, you can't just say, well, it's OK for the government to recognize Russia, and we can, but there's still risk. And you have to manage your own risk and, and so forth. So, it, it, But it does create a certain climate where it masks the reality that you're dealing with terrorists. Like If your employee goes to Russia and is held in a police cell for 48 hours for no good reason, just to intimidate them, to make the deal go through at a lesser cost to whoever is pulling the strings behind the police in that town, because often that's part of what's happening, right? They want the deal to happen. and so if that's what's happening it's a little more understandable that people go in with a, a blithe perspective on yeah well it's russia and, and how bad could it possibly be so to to me it's another perspective on your point about how could this even be our foreign policy like part of the function of a good foreign policy or rational foreign policy is to guide companies and individuals to tell them look if you go to russia you're on, you're on your own you might as well go to the moon we're not we're not going to come and get you like if you if you go to ISIS territory five years ago, never come back. Or we don't even want you back. You, you can't be a citizen. We're going to disown you. Or, or we don't expect a rescue mission. If you're going into a war zone that we have nothing to do with. Uh, and I think this is the absence of that is is evident in this Griner situation, where she's going back and forth to Russia for years now, working there. And as you said, the the, the laws well, such as they are in Russia are well-known. The risks are well-known, and I think the uh, this is a a facet of what happens when you don't have a focus on what are your interests as a nation? How do you navigate that through diplomatic means? And what do you think of other countries? Is it really right to send Americans to Russia and tell them, yeah, well, we have an embassy, we have representation, you're gonna be okay, we'll we'll bail you out. Maybe it should be exactly the opposite. The the travel warnings that you get from some countries is like, yeah, there's a problem, we don't advise you to travel. And it has to be Russia's invading Ukraine. That, that's the level at which it, the kind of guidance you get. Well, I don't need you to tell me that. I can see the tanks. I need you to tell me, okay, the risk profile here is such that you don't want to do business here. And if you do, none of your assets are safe. And we're not going to help you with that. That's the kind of thing that you would need. And I think it's a hard thing to do, but it's it's really essential. Uh, for the reason you mentioned, Like, what, I'd love to see parts of Russia. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go to China either because I, I think similar things can happen to you. Um, so, yeah, I think it really underscores the need for a rational policy in the absence of it.
1: Yeah, and it is hard in one sense, but from another sense, it's if our foreign policy was willing to make moral judgments and not think, oh, it's, it makes it really hard to deal with Russia or China if we say, look, you guys are dictators. And we as a country are against dictatorship. We think dictatorship is evil and it applies across the board and so to your regimes too. And if you had any respect for your people, you would step down and try to move the country to freer institutions, not try to amass power so you're even a great more powerful dictator. If we were willing to say that and recognize that that is actually in our self-interest to do this both to help arm the better people in these countries, And to educate the own citizens that like this is should be your view, not of a Russian person that you meet, but of the Russian regime, and again, not of a Chinese person you meet, but of the Chinese regime, this is how you should think of it. And that's why it's buyer beware if you go to these countries, because this is how they're currently ruled, and the rule is corrupt and evil, if we were willing to make that kind of judgment. It would be easier for these very. some regimes are very mixed and it's hard to know how corrupt exactly is this place, but it's not particularly hard to know for Russia or China, if you're willing to see what's in front of your own eyes. But our, part of our whole foreign policy is on the premise that if we don't name it, it doesn't really exist and won't really have detrimental effects. So if we, if we don't say that Putin is evil or the whole Chinese regime is evil, because, well, that makes it hard when you're at a dinner party with them or whatever, um, or talking to them in the UN, that if you've called them evil, it makes it difficult to have a conversation. Um, if we didn't have that kind of premise, it would be much easier for the government to say, look, these countries are really bad in terms of their rule. And if you go to them, you're on your own For and for that reason. So I agree with you that it's a, it's a mitigating factor. The more we treat Russia, they, they get the World Cup and they're in the UN. And so like people, an average citizen, like how bad can they be if we treat them like this? And, and so that is a mitigating factor. But as you said, it doesn't completely excuse, because it's not that hard for instance, to know that Putin assassinates his political rivals, including when they're in Western countries, they get poisoned and things like that. Like it's not, you have to dig and dig and dig to find that information out, so that you're going to a corrupt, a place that is ruled by a corrupt government is not difficult to ascertain.
0: I wanted to talk a bit about the reactions to this and some of the way people are analyzing what happened. I, and I guess there's there's the other issue of, um, well, let's come back to that. So, so I mentioned that Paul Whelan was one of the two prisoners that the U.S. wanted to to release from Russia along with, so it's Griner and Whelan. Whelan was left behind. He's not being released as part of this deal, and who knows, maybe there'll be another deal in which he's released. I don't know a lot about him or the reasons that he's in prison, but one of the things that came out in the reactions to the release of Griner, it was, it was, I guess, not surprisingly politicized very quickly, and one of the things which I don't, I don't find really credible that you heard from critics is that, well, Griner was released because she's, uh, she's progressive, she's gay, she's Black, she's in the WNBA, of course, she, she fits all the kinds of things that matter to Biden and the Democrats. I, I don't find that credible. I, I don't think that that's really why she got the attention that she did. And I think this is. we were talking about this earlier before the, the start of the conversation but i do think it's significant that she's a celebrity that she has a high profile and that she's able to if she writes a letter to biden from prison in russia if she has people in the us who have her back the wnba was allied with her i think that makes a significant difference and one of the things i take from that is the the kind of ad hoc character of foreign policy like if you you might have a policy that yeah we're going to get everyone out of russia if you're like okay, it's, it's a stupid policy, but at least you'd be consistent and say, yeah, if you get in trouble, we'll, we'll get you out. And, and not to uh, negate everything that we've just said about how this is not a rational policy, but you might have a, a policy, but this isn't what they're doing. And it's clearly the case that there's that there are people who are not gonna get attention. And the same is true in other countries, like in, in China, there are people in prison and in, in various countries. So I think that this is another dimension in which you can say that there isn't a principle here. There, it's not. it is, Well, it's, she got a lot of attention. It would be a sad thing if she was stuck in prison for 10 years, then WNBA would be upset and they would criticize the Biden administration and others. And I think that's a big factor for why this was such a big story and why I think so much effort was put into it. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts on that is.
1: Yeah, unfortunately it seems true that it was this makes us look bad that we she's in prison and now prison for 10 years and is g- going to a a, a a really bad prison and so that yeah it, it's too much of this is a public relations issue and yeah i don't find it from the evidence presented that it's well because she's black or gay or something like that but that it's a celebrity so that this is being reported on as against like who had heard of Whelan prior to. Uh, Griner being in prison, and people talking about, well, can we get her out? Or who else can get out? So, or then when she's get when the deal was made, people criticizing the deal. And so, but so, yeah, that her celebrity status is this is a PR problem for us. So, we need to do something about it. That's if our foreign policy is conducted on that basis, that's disturbing. But unfortunately, I think there's evidence that that's, that is what was driving it. And what I found shocking in terms of the media coverage was going to this to this kind of tribal, oh, it's because she's black or, and not going to the more obvious that it's celebrity, but also nobody asking, why is she in Russia? Why is she working in Russia? Is it legitimate to be working in Russia? So if it were an oil and gas executive, who's doing some kind of work and deals in Russia for fossil fuels and so on. I think there would have been all kinds of like, why is this person doing this kind of thing? And should we try to get this person out and so on? But nobody asked basically from what I could see, why was she there? And to the extent it was brought up, it was brought up as a criticism of American, a bogus criticism, but a criticism of America is it's, well, there's not pay equity in America as though um, a female bas- professional basketball player should make the same as a male basketball player when the attendance and the viewership for the NBA versus the WNBA is an order of magnitudes different, which explains why there's way more money in the NBA than to, and why there's a difference in pay. Um, that So it was a criticism of the US rather than, yeah, there might be criticism of her for going to Russia and thinking of it as, yeah, this is just like going to a different state in America and everything should work the same. And then if I get into trouble, um, the US government should bargain and release. I mean, his name is the merchant of death. He was convicted of helping arm people, killing American soldiers. And this is who we're gonna give up because somebody decided, well, I want to play basketball in Russia. And if the corrupt Russian government, um, uh, I fall foul of its legal system. Yeah, there should be a deal and you should let um, a, 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 someone who's convicted. I haven't looked into all the evidence for his conviction and so on. But from the government's perspective, this is how they regard him. As this is a killer or, and, or a aid to the killing of American soldiers, and you're gonna release this person. And nobody brought up the question, like, why is this person working in Russia? Um, and that's a question I think has to be
0: asked. So I think we're close to time and it's a good time, opportunity to wrap up. We didn't plan this conversation to be uh, can, to connect the two topics. We just th- found two topics we were really interested in. Uh, but in the course of the conversation, I think a number of things came up where there's some overlap here. So one, I, I'll I'll just put them out as headlines and tell me if you want to add to this. One is that with Griner, there is a lack of a government policy to protect freedom. So if, you, if there was a foreign policy that took seriously the moral character of other nations and took our own interests seriously and understood them and defined them objectively and pursued them, then there there would be guidance on how to approach situations like this, and it would be a much better approach. Uh, so this is a, def- a defect in the government, not f- having a, a rational policy to protect our freedom and protect the freedom of Americans, and it, to the extent that it would be, don't go to this country because we can't protect you if you go to this country and, and conduct business there. So that's a, an extension of that. And I think the other point of overlap, not the only one, but one is in the context of the Musk ownership of Twitter and the issue of free speech is that the point you were stressing is that the the real issue here is we need to think more about the fact that government is pressuring companies like Twitter and threatening to change the law to punish them. And that here it's it's actively undermining the freedom of speech. This is an issue of... uh, government overstepping its role and and infringing on the freedom of speech of companies and 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 by extension it, it, this is a two kinds of defect that i think are important to see uh, so what, what do you think of that summary do you want to add to it different perspective
1: no i think that's right it, so one needs a pro- proper perspective on what government should be doing and should not be doing and both take real thinking to understand these are obligations of the government and these are things that should be beyond its power and it certainly has obligations in regard to foreign policy but unfortunately the where we are now people do not understand what government should be doing if it's to take seriously the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. And it grants, people grant too much power to government that it should not have. And that's the, and, and now there's increasing calls for, oh, I guess we need more regulation of social media companies. But I would add this, that it did not take these episodes. It does not take the release of the Twitter files and so on to understand this. It did not take the Griner episode to understand this. It's, if you look at our foreign policy, it is writ in large that we do not make moral judgments. The whole way that we got into um, what's happened in Ukraine is Western governments, including the US government, and this is both, it's the Obama administration, Trump administration, it's Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, it's they pretend that Russia and the Putin regime are much better than they are. And if you're going to do that, you're gonna be met with disaster after disaster, whether it's a war in Ukraine, whether it's having to release an arms dealer because they've taken somebody Prisoner, you want back? You you will not be able to function properly. And similarly, any free speech absolutist should have the moment the U.S. government started hauling these social media companies to Washington, explain your behavior. Are you banning conservatives? What are you doing with this? Are you allowing Russian disinformation? So we want to know, and the implication is regulate, control your content moderation policies. If people were not up in arms in regard to that, and this was done in the open, you don't need a release of files. This was done completely in the open. And if people are not up in arms about that, it's either they don't understand what freedom of speech is or they don't care. And that's the wider perspective. And it's not, oh, now we see from the Twitter files that government's involved in social media companies. And the best reporting on this, I think, has said that there's nothing really new here. We knew all of this before. Um, and the question is, do you understand the full meaning of what was happening? And you can only understand that if you really understand the principle of freedom of speech. All
0: right, well, let's draw a line there. Thanks, Honkara. So. I, looking for the audience to tell us what if they enjoyed today's uh, new format we would love to get your feedback you can always reach us newideal at einrand.org and i want to encourage you if you have questions about god and religion we will have a special q and a episode coming up in january send us your questions we will uh, we'll read them all we'll we'll try to include as many as we can into the podcast that's coming up january 13 you can reach us uh, with feedback generally and with questions at newideal at aynrand.org. Next week, we'll have a, I guess, topical uh, podcast on New Year's resolutions. The topic, the claim, or the title for that episode is Why New Year's Resolutions Fail. And the hosts will be Nico Cedricopoulos and Don Watkins. That'll be on December 29th. Hope you can join us then. And as usual, if you're watching us on YouTube or whatever platform you're on, there's a way to like, share, subscribe, become part of our channel we'd love for you to do that that helps us reach more people and it helps us reach you and tell you when we're going live if you do leave a comment we we try to read them all and again if you have feedback you can send it to us by email and until next time thank you and see you then
1: you've been listening to new ideal a podcast from the ayn rand institute if you like what you hear leave us a review share with a friend and subscribe to our other podcasts This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.